Hey everyone, just before we get into this week's episode, we want to thank our sponsors for today, the Medical Defence Union. The MDU support doctors facing medical legal issues and are the market leaders for indemnity in the UK, being also run by doctors. Become a member today to access their 24-hour medical legal helpline and other cool resources, including their free online CPD courses and journals. Check them out on their socials for guidance and advice, including their exciting competitions. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week, we're super lucky to be joined by someone who is a legend, Professor Tony Young. He's a consultant surgeon in the NHS. He's the National Clinical Director for Innovation at NHS England and also the Director of Medical Innovation at Anglia Ruskin University. It's an absolute professor pleasure to have you on board professor how are you it's an absolute professor you were quite right <laughs> um, that was really good it's absolute pleasure um, yeah uh no uh, uh, thank you so much um for your invite to come and um and and have a chat with you i'm looking forward to the conversation no definitely there are many accolades which i can go on forever of the many things you have achieved and pioneered the the one thing that stands out for us or for me in particular is Every time I hear talk or hear you speak, it's you have a genuine love for the NHS um, and it's something that we try to promote and echo. But we want to take it back all the way to the very beginning and kind of talk us through that process of was there a point in your life where you suddenly thought, do you know what, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a surgeon. Take us to the very beginning and kind of share that journey with us. Um, so it's uh, sometimes... Uh to understand um, the beginning, you have to kind of start at the end and work backwards. Oh. Mm-hmm. And um, I, a few years ago, um, uh, while I was at NHS England, was offered the opportunity to take part in professional coaching. And I'm a mm-hmm. really open-minded person, and I, I would say it's one of my core values, being open-minded. And um, so I embraced it and went went for it with this coach and they do had to take you through this wonderful thing because as when you get into positions in life and you get more senior suddenly all sorts of things are opportunities and responsibilities and things are coming in your way and you have to prioritize mm-hmm. and you're trying to work out what do i really want to do with my life what do mm-hmm. which direction do i want to take it in and so in the process of coaching um what you do is you actually sit down with your coach and you tell them the story of your life. And Mm. it turns out that the way the brain is structured, when you tell someone the story of your life, your many millions of things have happened to all of us across our lives. Mm. But the memories that you have that are pushed forward into your consciousness tend to be about significant things in your life. And when you tell these to your coach, and you, you know, it's just a story. So I could tell you the story of I, you know, I grew up in a family with two other brothers, and my parents both worked for charities, and mm-hmm. um, so there was a real ethos of um, community and social responsibility, and doing things for others and making a difference, and those kind of things become ingrained in you. And I will give my coach a number of stories about things that had happened to me when I was young. I recall mm. um, when my my mum uh, did a bit of social work as well, 
And I recall one day uh, this girl from this sort of mother and child club she was running couldn't go home with her parents. It wasn't safe. So she got brought home to our house to my twin brother and I. And there was this what we thought was a beautiful um, six year old girl. And um, we played, she stayed, ended up staying with us for a couple of weeks. And um, one day she said to my brother and I, um, would you like to play mummies and daddies? I had no idea what that was going to mean. And of course, the six-year-old boy said, yeah, let's do it. So she went to yeah. the wardrobe. She took out a suitcase. Mm. She filled it with clothes, took it to the top of the stairs, threw it down the stairs and said, now get out. And wow. I was horrified that here was this beautiful playmate we had, and yet her exposure in life to what mums and dads did was so different to mine. And when I told my coach, yeah. I don't know why that story came to mind when I was talking to my coach. Yeah. And she said, well, do you know, um, injustice and inequality are things that come through in some of the stories you've told us. So having, um, uh, you know, having, having grown up in a, a, a family where as I said, both my parents worked for charities and, and there was a real drive around community and social responsibility. I've always really enjoyed science and education and people and interactions. And kind of that medicine feels like a really good fit when you like people and science. And I was the first in my family, first generation ever to go to university. I came from very humble origins and um, I got there and it was just the most amazing experience. I, I, I think there were 220 in my year. And when I broke into the top 200 in the exams, it would be a real celebration. You know, I hadn't done biology A level. I wasn't the brightest one in terms of academics and passing exams. But I just absorbed everything I could. And... Um, I had a particular and interest in neuroscience, which I loved and other things. Mm. And then I started my clinical um, uh, rotations in my third year. And the first day I went into theatre, there was this absolutely mad surgeon in the room, it would appear. And he was inventing things. And he was, I recall he was there with his registrar. And um, they were running an experiment on the side of the theatre looking at um, irrigation fluids in TURP and how that affected vision. They were designing things, looking at the surgical instruments they might use to look at optics and vision and what and what paper they were going to publish on that. And I met this surgeon for the first time and he showed me the instrument he was using, which is one he had invented. And he built a company around it and sold it. And I this light bulb moment went off in my head and I went, that's what I want to be. And he was a urologist and from that moment on, I kind of became a urologist. And I thought, this, <laughs> wow. is, this is what they do. I say, so you become a surgeon like this. You go and invent things. You pattern them. You license them. You start a company. And then you have a career where you are a clinician and you do other things as well. And I, I had no idea that, of course, this particular surgeon was a complete outlier. Almost no surgeons <laughs> like that. Yeah. And it just happened that I walked in. My very first theatre experience mm -hmm. ever, and I just thought, this is what I want to do, and it just felt like that. And ever since then, well, I've done four startups, raised five million, exited those, done a whole range of other things, and now help uh, clinicians across the National Health Service with their startups and what we're doing. So 
Professor, was it a shock when you saw that this surgeon had actually invented an instrument um, and was testing it? Was that a shock to the system to see? It, well, it was. I, it was just awe. I was awestruck. Mm. Here was this individual who was doing something technically, you know, really yeah. um, demanding and difficult, doing surgery on people, and yet one of the instruments he was using on that had, you know, he'd taken through. I mean, he'd invented it several years before, and it was now, a, a, mm. you know, a product you, um, uh, you know, could buy through surgical device companies. It was just, mm. it, it was. I was kind of awestruck and going. So he's. He's making a difference. It wasn't about just making the difference to the patient in front of him. He was helping mm. make a difference to people beyond those who he would ever meet or see himself, because lots of surgeons mm. were using the technology that he'd invented. And, and for me, I suppose that kind of rang true with my core mm. values of it was about wanting to make a difference, but actually it was mm. about wanting to make a difference at scale. And I thought, wow, if you're a yeah. clinician, you can affect so many people's lives. But if you're a a clinician and an innovator or an entrepreneur or an inventor, mm. then you can impact the lives of so many more people who your innovation, your invention touches. And, and maybe then you can transform healthcare. And that, and that kind of tied back into my roots when I was young because my parents, as I was growing up, it was all about making a difference to others around them, contributing to the community. How can you make the world a better place each day leave it a better place than than how you arrived mm. in it and and those, those are good values to have in a kid i think growing up and i've sort of mm -hmm. tried to maintain those through um, my medical life too and it it feels mm. true and authentic um i hope it makes me a bigger better person um, each day i certainly don't like doing things that make me a smaller person or a worse person each day um Although you'd have to ask my children um, when I've told them off <laughs> whether that's true or not. But um, uh, and so if you, yeah, if you feel like you're doing something that aligns with what is true for you, then um, and that was it. So uh, so I, there was no question. I I, I um, mm. was a medical student. I did a project with this surgeon. I did my house jobs with the yeah. surgeon. I did my PhD mm. with this surgeon. Um, oh, wow. And um, then. Uh, then he let me go and I was uh, a registrar and um, I went off on a training rotation and, uh, yeah. and, and then kind of the rest of my life yeah. happened. And so it seems as if this, this, this surgeon, this individual was a mentor for you. Would you see him as a mentor and a coach who kind of guided you on so, um, early on in your career? And, and one of the key lessons that I have learned in life mm. is about mm. finding really great mentors that are prepared yeah. to support you and I would identify mm. three there's probably more mm. <clears throat> so this surgeon mm. um, Ron Miller who was a urologist at the Whittington Hospital in London the vice chancellor former vice chancellor of my university Mike Thorne who was amazing mm. in, in helping me and, and just observing how leaders really work and then Sir Bruce Keogh the former national medical director at NHS England when he gave me my break in NHS England, mm. he took me under his wing, gave me his blessing and air cover. He that was the key thing. Mm. Um, you know, when people were gunning for me, and they, oh, yeah. <laughs> I had Bruce <laughs> providing the cover. He shielded and you. He, uh, yeah. you know, it was. And and what you can do with that is amazing. But I saw what each of those leaders did for yeah. others, 
and there were lots of they were doing similar things for lots of people and i suppose it's kind of why now i feel it's a really great thing for me to be able to do to give back to um, definitely uh, spend time and try and inspire people you know medicine is such a great thing and yet it's so hard it really and difficult mm -hmm. but particularly at the moment with covid and other things that are going on mm. and you know some people just lose that sparkle and that reason why they started this in the and the first place and and they kind of stopped dreaming and following their dreams and, mm. and you must never do that why do we stop dreaming why have we got a system that kind of yeah. can grind you down and i mean it's not a uk problem if you look in america i think it's one in two mm -hmm. clinicians are either burnt out or on the verge of burnout do you know there's something badly wrong if that's the situation and it's the job of leaders as i see it to step forward and, and try and do something about that and, and that's kind yeah. of what i hope i'm doing now yeah and i think a lot of i do feel a lot of doctors especially when you're you know you're 18 19 you you have such lofty aspirations and you do want to pursue medicine um which is when i found out about the the nhs clinical entrepreneur program which was good is it's still the beauty of the program was that it still allows you to be a doctor while also pursuing other ventures and projects on the side which i feel kind of makes you a better clinician it allows you to still have your hobbies and interests and it kind of you know allows you to for me kind of doing the hobbies inside i feel makes me enjoy my job more it makes me more productive it makes me do um better and perform better um kind of moving on to the nhs clinical entrepreneur program um how did it start? Did you kind of notice a need as clinicians that they were innovating, but there wasn't a platform or a source for them to kind of bring it to market? Or where did that kind of spark originate from? So I think, um, so I had, um, I started my first company when I was in my mid to late 20s. Um, mm. And within a few years, I'd had to remortgage my house, £150,000 of money I didn't have went into my first company. Um, and of course, oh, you can't wow. afford to give up when you've done that. But since then, I've no. done four startups, raised five million pounds in funded and uh, funding and exiting, exited them all. But I had to fight the National Health Service my whole way. People said, yeah. you should mm. be a surgeon. You shouldn't be an entrepreneur. They said, um, mm. why are you trying to steal these ideas from the, from the NHS? And they weren't anyone's ideas other than mine, a way of improving <laughs> yeah. services. and and mm. taking things forward. And um, if you could see the scars on my back um, from those interactions and all I was trying to do was change and transform patient care, but I battled through and I'm still standing mm. and all those people who mm. tried to take me out are now long gone. And then when I got to NHS England around six years ago or so now, um, and I was in post, um, a number of junior doctors started approaching me and saying, that mm. we're raising money for um, the startup, but we're being told we have to, we can't stay. We can't do a startup and stay in our trainee rotation. Yeah. Uh, the, the first two to come and see me, although there were a few, were uh, mm. Jean Neem and Andre Chow, who formed um, Touch Surgery, that went on to become Digital Surgery, that has just sold to Medtronic in February yeah, this year. Mm -hmm. And um, they said, we really, really don't want to leave surgery, but we're being given no choice. We're, we almost feel like they were being bullied out of it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and a few other people had started saying things like that. So I went to see Bruce Keogh 
and um, told him the story. And he said, Tony, that's terrible. We've got these are our some of our brightest, most talented clinicians. We can't afford to lose them. And I said, I agree with you. He said, come on, what are we going to do about it? And so yes. I said, well, you know, we support people who want to be leaders, who want to be educators, who want to be researchers, who want to be teachers. But we're not currently supporting clinicians who want to be entrepreneurs. So why don't we launch an entrepreneur program? And we won't give them any money, but we'll give them lots of blessing and support <laughs> and advice and guidance and maybe even less mm. than full time training so they can do both. And Bruce said, brilliant. Get on with it and I'll come and launch it for <laughs> yes. you at Expo. A man of action. And yeah. um, well, he, he trusted me and um, that was, we launched, we're just recruiting for year five now. So that was four and a half odd years ago. And here we are now, uh, four years down the line, we've just got our end of year data. It's not quite finalized, so it will change a bit. But mm. in our first four years, it's looking like, I think it's 226 life science startups over 250 wow, wow. million pounds raised between them, over 130 junior doctors who quit the NHS or who are on the verge of quitting have come back to work in it. So we've turned yeah. the brain drain into a brain yeah. gain. And over 20 million patients that we can count have been impacted by um, the program and the innovations, over 1,300 jobs created. But more than anything, I think the program has kind of changed people's lives who are on it when you're in the nhs mm. and you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to do something you kind of stand out from the crowd um, but yeah. when you come on the entrepreneur program you are one of the crowd because there is a room yeah. full of another one or 200 people who are just like you not in terms of they're all kinds of different shapes and sizes and different mm. specialties but you all carry some really similar core values, a drive, a passion, a commitment to transforming patient mm. care and, and wanting to achieve that. And you can't do everything within healthcare. Sometimes mm. you, if you want to build a sustainable innovation, you've got to get it, your idea out of the hospital, out of the lab and get it into a business and grow it so that mm. it becomes sustainable. So the health service or any um, you know, provider of healthcare across the planet can buy that and utilize that mm. service for the benefit of patient care. So it actually came from um, uh, junior doctors, particularly the founders of Touch Surgery, who wow. um, approached me and their superstar examples. Now, although they have left frontline practice mm. at the moment, um, mm. I would argue that the innovation that they have developed is going to mm -hmm. impact more lives across the planet than they ever could have done as a single practicing clinician. The last stats I saw, I think, were around two and a half, three million regular users of their education oh, training wow. platforms. Oh, wow. um, lots of advances in robotic surgery. Um, you know, we yeah. haven't got enough surgeons on the planet. There, there are not enough yeah. people who are trained to perform that. Just imagine. Mm -hmm if we could get to that era where it may not be the super complex operations, maybe it's the more simple ones. You know, the first um, uh, stages of computer vision and robotics that um, they showed me more than a year ago now when I was in yeah. offices in London were mm. the technology that is going to lead to, I suspect, the first um, autonomous robotic cataract replacement. And oh, it was just, and I'm, you know, cataracts and blindness that they cause it's a real real issue just imagine mm. if you didn't have to take 
uh, highly trained ophthalmic surgeon and so, send them to a country. Say you could set up some kit and a healthcare assistant could place someone in a seat. It's all done under local anesthetic, of course. And then, uh, you know, everything is done by a robot. And people think that sounds like science fiction. Well, I have seen the technology that's capable of making that happen done on mm. models of eyes with the computer vision, mm. recognizing the instruments, the surgical steps. And this came out of two lads um, who were um, told you can either be surgeons or you can be entrepreneurs. You can't be both. And so they quit the mm -hmm. NHS and um, they came back oh. under under the program. So I'm, I'm really proud of that. And I'm really wow. proud of them and what they've gone on to do. No. Professor, if we take it back a little bit, um, so you've talked about innovation and some of our listeners now who have been suppressing their sort of entrepreneurial spirit are now sort of perked up and they're listening very closely now. So when you say innovation, what exactly is it? And then tell us a little bit about you. How did you get into what inspired you to innovate to come up with I've heard a few of your inventions um the humane mousetrap <laughs> to name one um tell us a little bit about your inventions and your journey in that so um so people often confuse invention with innovation and they are two very different things and innovation, there's a, there is a definition we use in the NHS, and I'll get it slightly wrong because it's written down. Um, and basically, it means um, something that is new to where you are, that is proven to be cost-effective, improve quality of care for patients. Um, and then you take that up across your system. So you don't have to, doesn't mean you have to invent everything yourself. If there's something really good, that's new, that's been working something out or somewhere else, and you take that up across mm. your system, then that's an innovation. So you could have the best invention in the world, but if it doesn't get people up and uh, get taken up and, and people don't use it, then it's not an innovation. So I call mm. an innovation is invention plus adoption plus diffusion. And if you put no. those together, then to me, that's um, what it is. So smartphones are definitely an um, innovation but there have been because people use them and they're ubiquitous aren't they and um, but mm. there are many things that might have been great and and lots of inventors come up with things and go no one will take this up and and, and you know doesn't become <laughs> an innovation and there's no use in them getting angry about it you have to try and work out what hasn't worked about that and 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 how you yeah. might take it forward but with uh, as innovation and what kind of drives you so I always loved um, creativity and art and but I can't draw to save my life and um, but I realized that even though I thought artists and writers and poets and musicians all had this wonderful talent actually my bit of creativity came from um, using my thoughts to, and my feelings, importantly, engaging with your feelings is really important, your unconscious brain and unleashing that to try and solve problems and issues that would make a real difference. And there's a fundamental thing that's built into human beings, probably goes way back in evolution to give us an advantage, isn't it, about questions and solving problems and gaining those answers. And I think mm. I was particularly um, uh, driven by that, always trying to 
you know, look at new ways of doing things. And I think lots of clinicians are a bit like that, but sometimes the pressures of mm. life and a whole range of other yeah. things come into play, take your focus on that. And I suppose I'm really um, uh, blessed and fortunate that I get to just exploit the things I really, really enjoy doing and um, I'm passionate about, you know, at Energies England, I, I meet more than a thousand companies a year and they yeah. beat their way to our door to tell us about the latest thing they've got. I have a number of gadgets I get to see that do something. I think you have the coolest wow, job on earth. Yeah. It's just, I mean, some of them are someone I shouldn't, I've, I probably shouldn't name many of the. Yeah, what did I, oh, I saw something recently. No, it's very rarely. Yeah, tell us. And well, I, I, probably best not to name okay it yeah. was in my but someone showed me something and i would only tell you to stop very rare would, would it be for me to say you have to stop this you can't do it and that's happened twice once was early on and an eastern european he looked like he'd come out of a bond you know a bond villain out of a movie eastern mm -hmm. european scientist he was an obstetrician <laughs> came to me to tell me about his new um, uh, birthing chair in which mm. um, would uh, uh, prevent the need for forceps or suction and would lead to much safer delivery. Uh -huh. And I said, okay, mm -hmm. how does this chair do this? He said, well, it's, um, it's centrifugal force. And I said, what do you mean? And he uh -huh. said, well, it's connected to a big arm and the obstetrician and the patient are on this chair. And you've seen that Bond movie where he gets spun round and round really fast. Yeah. In this and I'm going, hang on, are you having a joke? He was deadly serious. And I said, that's dangerous. Just stop it. You, this is... And, Have you seen the centrifuge machine? He, he like spins and like crazy. So, I mean, you get to crazy. And someone else had something where recently where they were wanted to turn a simple procedure that's um, mm. based on uh, uh, using a catheter to um, mm. something that required percutaneous puncture. And um, I asked them, okay, you're going to do this percutaneous puncture with this procedure. What's the mortality rate associated with doing percutaneous puncture of that organ? And they had no idea. And I said, well, I can tell you because I know the literature on this is about 2%. I said, what mm. is the mortality rate of doing it just with the standard catheter as you're browsing? And I had no idea. And I said, well, it's really low and it's probably about one in 50,000 to one in 100,000. I said, so mm. this is not safe. You, I'm, I'm, yeah. We're not going to carry on this conversation until you can provide evidence to show that this is safe. And I don't think it is. We, do, we can't proceed with that. So there are sometimes yeah. there are things you look at that are not safe and sometimes you look at these things that come forward and you just you have like this moment and you go wow that could really be i recall i i sat there i get to, i get to do some great things so i got to mm. go to um uh silicon valley and i met tom fogarty uh -huh. so mm -hmm. you're going tom fogarty who's it the fogarty embolectomy catheter so he was the vascular surgeon back in the 1950s, who we used to cut people's legs open all the way down the leg. You'd make incisions yeah, until yeah. you found where the clot was and you could extract oh, wow. it. And he said, well, this is really simple. Why don't we make one cut in the top of the leg, mm. pass this catheter uh, you know, down the vessel, inflate this balloon, and then pull it out, and we can extract the clot that has gone down there. 
and yeah. he then became one of the leading surgical innovators of his generation and a very wealthy man and I I sat next to him at dinner in the Fogarty Winery in the hills in Mountain View, um, <laughs> just outside, um, uh, or just outside Mountain View in the hills there, and going, I should have been a surgeon in America. I knew it. this is incredible. Yeah. Go on, at that dinner, um, I sat next to, oh, it was Charles, what's his surname? Anyway, he had invented something called Heart Flow, which was. Hmm. The, one of the first artificial intelligence systems in healthcare. They'd invented it at Stanford University, and it looked at whether or not you would benefit from having a coronary stent put in. And there was lots of data to show that in about 10% or slightly more of people, they don't benefit from a coronary stent. Flow doesn't improve, but they get all the risks of having the procedure done and none of the benefit. Mm -hmm. And they developed this AI algorithm that could look at um, hmm. your um, results, your uh, uh, cardiac catheterization results, your CT coronary angiogram, which they were doing more and more of in the States then, and said, actually, we can predict pretty accurately if you're going to benefit or not. And they did a range of randomized control trials. And guess what? It was, um, it really does what it says. You can predict the patients who oh, aren't wow. going to benefit. So I was, I'd just been appointed, I think, at NHS England. And um, mm. so I came back and I was so passionate. I wanted to drive this. And um, Simon Stevens, our chief exec, um, was, uh, mm. wanted to bring in this new innovation technology tariff and program. And um, I helped you know, design and, and take that forward. And when um, we got that into a place, I let the people in Stanford know what we were doing and said, come on, we can get this taken up in the NHS. And mm. I think it was two years ago now that it mm. got approved. We brought it into our, it might have been three years ago, our elective chest pain pathways. And yeah. I, I want to say it was taking 28 weeks to go from first symptoms in a GP to completing the pathway. Um, and we brought the um, heart flow um, technology in um, and mm. it reduced that from 28 down to about seven weeks. And we saved 17% oh, oh, wow. of the cost um, in our um, elective chest pain pathways. So we've improved quality of care, we've reduced side effects for patients, and we've released money so we can spend that on different aspects of patient care just by bringing in an AI algorithm. And now we've made, we've nationally commissioned that, or we're paying for it centrally, let's put it that way, over and, mm. and um, uh, radiology departments across the country can have access to that. Now, the last data I've got is pre-COVID, but it was about, I want to say about 5,000 patients a quarter that were able to have this software analyzing their CT coronary angiograms. Mm. So, you know, you can make a massive difference. So that, uh, I, I was giving a talk at Stanford, which is why um, I happened to be in Stanford at that time. But you see, oh, see. That, that thing, meeting that person, seeing a great idea. Mm. And you know, when, that, when they signed the national contract with the NHS within a month, mm they'd raised $250 million in the American markets to then expand oh, this wow. globally because they were able to say, the NHS has signed up for this nationally. This is their data. So other healthcare systems across the world went, Just well, we see. should do that too. And it's, it's yeah. made a massive difference to patient care. Um, I definitely agree. And I feel really mm. proud of my small role in, in, in help make so people I will never meet have had their lives changed because of um, some, uh, and we're the first nation in the world. Everyone says, oh, the NHS is not known for being innovative and adopting things. And I say, really? Let me tell you the story of heart flow. And I could tell you 
many different stories about things. Look at genomics um, and the human genome. You know, in the 1950s, we discovered DNA 2000. We decoded the whole human genome. And when the NHS turned 70 a few years ago, we became the first nation to roll out whole genome screening for cancer and rare mm -hmm. diseases. So you see, we can be world leading in what we do sometimes. Yeah. So we don't get it right all of the time, for sure. Can we do more? Yes, of course we can. Do we need to work harder? Absolutely, we do. Absolutely. And I'm yeah. committed and mm -hmm. driven um, to doing that. And I don't know what the biggest innovation of all is the National mm -hmm. Health Service itself, you know. In, um, yeah. you know, when 1947, um, when it first um, um, came to be, you know, before that date, you had to pay for health care. You had to decide, am I, am I going to feed my family or are we going to pay yeah. for health care today? Which one are we going to do? Mm -hmm. Because that was the, and people seem to have forgotten that that was the choice. Am I going to put dinner on the table or yeah. can we get that condition treated? And so the, I would say the largest social innovation of the modern era was universal mm. healthcare, and Britain led the way with the National Health Service. And now every, I would say, developed economy on the planet has some form of universal healthcare coverage. They're funded in different ways, but it really was. Yeah. And I, uh, we should be super proud of what we've done. Um, uh, the the greatest innovation of the modern era in in I think in in healthcare for sure. And um, but that doesn't mean we can rest on our laurels. It doesn't mean we can't always work mm. harder and do more. Absolutely. Mm. But, um, so I think it's a great place. I know it's tough on the front line at the moment. I'm still on the front yeah. line. I still do weekends on call. And... Just to share for a weekend on calls. I just came up a weekend on call. I really enjoyed it, to be fair. Um, but it kind of you know what I enjoy it. about the weekends on calls? It's the ward rounds with the FY ones yeah. and twos. Now, I don't know if they enjoy mm -hmm. it with me. Please go soft then, though. <laughs> I don't know if they enjoy it with me, but you know, I get we do all the, we mm. take it really slow. I don't expect them to know any mm. urology, and we go round mm. and we talk about things. And then I say to them, so, you know, what do you really want to do with your life? And they kind mm. of look at me, and then they normally tell me what they want to do with their career. And I said, no, yeah. what do you want to do with your life? And then we open up a conversation about them what their real dreams and aspirations are, where they want to go, what they want to do. And at the end of normally, because it's normally a long four-hour ward round, and we've walked around the whole yeah. hospital, which is at South End, a very long hospital. Um, mm -hmm. And at the end of it, they say, I've never had a conversation with a consultant like that before. Thank mm -hmm. you. And I just, I normally say, but shouldn't that be what it's like all the time? Because that should be the norm. That's the conversation I had with those great mentors of mine that surgeon I first mm. met, my old vice chancellor, and then Bruce Keogh. It was those kinds of things when you get down to the real human being that's behind mm. the professional mask or the doctor or the surgeon or whoever it is. Mm. Who's the real person and what do they really want to do? Definitely. I'm so jealous of those. F yeah, F if I could go back, I would have went back to yeah. South <laughs> But it kind of... And it's, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because we've had a number of people apply South End to come and do the yeah. job. Really <laughs> the, 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 the word has spread. You were on a great location in London. What are you doing coming to South End? They said, I want to become a work with you as a houseman. Yeah. Said, really? This podcast episode is going to increase that application. <laughs> yeah. Um, it kind of brings on to the next topic, and I'm sure you you'll probably agree, as with many entrepreneurs, is there's a certain sweetness to the life of an entrepreneur um, and I genuinely feel it is one of those 
things that you do in life where the impact isn't limited to your immediate surroundings rather you can scale it to have impact on thousands hundreds of thousands of people my question is based on your experience and what you seem to be successful what do you think the qualities and skills would make a a very successful um, clinical entrepreneur what are the skill sets that they need or they should develop in order to be successful and to make a real impact yeah so i mean that's a great question and it's one that's um you know commonly been asked can you Mm. are you born an entrepreneur or can you train Mm. someone to become an entrepreneur so there's a really interesting now i can't back this up with science and the stuff i've seen around i did look into it once in the literature Uh, i wasn't convinced enough work has been done in this space but there's something about a risk mindset and risk taking Mm. so there are some studies that have been done bizarrely on testosterone Mm. exposure in utero and when Mm. that happens at certain stages it affects the growth of your digits particularly the ratio of the length of your index finger to your ring finger and if you look there are a number of papers that have been published looking at this and some people if you look at your hands have really long index fingers compared to their ring finger and other people have longer ring fingers now various studies have been done looking at this as i say i'm not sure the science stacks up but anecdotally if you've got a high estrogen exposure um you have a longer index finger and if you have a higher testosterone exposure you have a longer ring finger now those are thought to have impacts on different ways the brain develops as you grow and as i say i really i'm almost embarrassed to say this because it's anecdote rather than science and i always like to base it in science but um the uh and if you're exposed to more estrogen then you are um uh, less um uh, risk friendly you're more risk averse you don't like um uh, uh, situations where uh, they're going to uh, put you in this uh, difficult or stressful environment. So I, mm. some, I forget where I read this and someone told me, and I looked at it and thought, mm. and then all the um, serial entrepreneurs I met who, um, and it was only a straw poll of about 10 of them. I just happened to be interviewing them and doing things. I told them this little story and they were all looking really anxious and they held their hands up and you know, they all, 10 out of 10 have massive ring fingers um, in length. And um, so that doesn't mean you're born that way. Let me be clear and you can't do something about it. Because since then, of course, the number of people who are great entrepreneurs have come along and shown me that uh, that's not necessarily true. So you can't, you can, some people have roughly equal on both sides. So it's, but so the, but the point is, are there some things about an entrepreneur that are um, about risk taking, um, you know, you, uh, you two are about to take a year out. You're taking a risk, aren't you? You're, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know, you're not just getting on a treadmill and staying on it and coming off the other end. And I, you know, I think more and more clinicians are going. There must be something more to life. I don't want to work so hard at medical mm. school. Just go through training, come out of the end. They'll work really mm. hard in the NHS, and then retire and then die. I kind of look back. I, I just want to go. I want to do something that um, it's I, I, what I think. I think it was Carl Jung, the psychologist, who described his definition of what the soul was. I quite like mm-hmm. it. I think it was him. And he said, it's mm. the human search for meaning. 
And, mm. you know, I think that there's something to that, isn't there? Because we all search for meaning. We find that in different ways. And in your careers, my experience is the most kind of chilled, content, insightful um, people who are at peace with their decision tend to be, um, yeah. you know, those ones who, um, uh, well, they're being authentic and true to themselves. And mm. they're kind of doing things that bring them meaning rather than um, things that are just, you know, grinding through a daily process and um, mm. uh, feeling exhausted and weary and shattered and grumpy. And, you know, I'm sure as medical students and now as junior doctors, you've met clinicians who fit that latter mm. bill. Mm. And um, and it's re I'm, I'm really sad when I meet people like that because they go, you know, to get into medical school, you have to be this wonderful, rounded, multi-talented human being who's got points from music and drama and all the... Yeah, yeah. Grade 8 pianist and, uh, yeah, and, and, and drummed out. It's such a shame. I know. And then in medical school, we kind of hack all those things off you. So you turn out as this homogenous clone called an FY1. And we wonder why people then um, look back and, and, and just feel like, it's not actually what they signed up for. And they mm. they really want to do so. And I think that's why we're seeing, I think the last figures I saw about 56% of trainees between FY2 and then moving on in their careers take a break now. Mm. And um, they, yeah. they explore something else. They've been working so hard. And all they're doing is running an experiment to try and see what what really feels right and true for me. What do I really want to do? And I think, you know that's absolutely right so you've got to be true to yourself and um, so i uh i'm not saying everyone should take a break at fy2 but what i am saying is hmm. you should be true to yourself and, and do do something that gives you meaning imagine doing things that don't give you meaning oh hmm. that must be horrible so destroying hmm. it'll be so crushing like can you imagine P professor i really love how you empower us juniors to actually follow our passions because i feel some of us keep it suppressed and that we feel like when we get onto this sort of conveyor belt we sort of have to go through the mrcs mrcp um go through the training years come out at the end as a consultant forget whatever hobbies and interests we have well for yes, some people that is the right route think about you know i i did my frcs as young as i possibly could I think mm -hmm. I was 26 when I got um, my oh, fellowship, wow. and um, wow. the um, and I wanted to prove myself, and, and I was still very much in a child mindset. There are two different stages of learning: childhood learning and adult learning. And still, even though I was 26, I was still very much in the childhood learning mindset. I'm afraid uh, I've changed since then. Mm -hmm. So thank goodness I'm now in the adult mindset. What does that mean, Professor? A child-like yeah. mindset and a, an adult one? Being childlike is really important. Um, for me, it's super important. And, and just being that crazy little dreamer when nothing is impossible. And, and uh, you know, when you're a kid, then you dream you can be a superhero that can change things in the reality of life, um, uh, you know, is that that really happens. And, and yet, you know, I kind of feel like um, sometimes you could be one of the NHS Avengers and you're going out there and you're making a real deal. And do you know what? When things like Heartflow come in, when things like Eurolift come in, so Eurolift is an amazing... Oh, when things like the Spaceor device come in, let's pick that. So the Spaceor, you know, people 
um, who have radiotherapy for prostate cancer. The rectum is sandwiched onto the back of the prostate. You can't separate the two of them. And so when we're exposing you to radiotherapy, you involve the rectum in the radiotherapy field and there's toxicity, you get pain, you get bleeding, and you can get cancer at a later stage from that. And so um, uh, this company developed this gel that you could inject in through the perineum and it peeled the prostate off the rectum so you could take it a centimeter or two away from it and therefore the rectum didn't have to be in the radiotherapy field. So I was involved in the assessment process a few years ago for looking at different innovations. And there were a whole range of different people, but no one around the table who were assessing this had prioritized this. And I sat there and I said, are you kidding me? It doesn't matter that this hasn't got nice guidelines saying everyone should do it and randomized double blind controlled trials with tens of thousands of patients because it's like asking me to say, um, where is the randomized controlled trial of parachutes? I'm not gonna do that experiment with some people jumping out of a plane with one and some without, because I know the result. Not like, if you give me a choice of exposing the rectum to radiotherapy unnecessarily or not, I don't need to do that clinical trial. I said, this is a patient safety issue. It's a men's health issue. And you know that argument won the day and NHS England commissioned it and it's now nationally available across the health service. And so even though I don't look anything like one of the Avengers, um, we can do some really super things in healthcare that make a difference and they make a difference to people's lives. And I'll, I'll, never, met the, I'll never meet the people who now don't have radiotherapy damage to their rectum, that I had a small part to play in getting that taken up. And, and that Definitely. feels super good doing things like that. Do you feel that juniors should kind of continue training, go through registrar training, become a consultant to kind of see clinical problems that they can potentially solve with their skill set? Because um, there's only certain things you're exposed to. Like in, in theatres, I wouldn't be assisting. I wouldn't have that much of an exposure until I'm a reg person. And one of the reasons I encourage clinicians to stay within the National Health Service because it's not about the solutions because lots of people can come up with solutions. It's about understanding the problems. And I think I'm going to misquote Einstein now, and I haven't looked this one up for a while. It's something like I spend 95% of the time analyzing and thinking about the problem and 5% of the time inventing the solution. I haven't got that quote quite right, but it's out there. And um, do you know, he was absolutely right on that. So understanding the problem you're trying to solve the need is the absolute first thing you could do and if you're not practicing medicine if you're not coming in you're not seeing the problems on the wards the problems in general practice the issues that staff are facing the patients are facing that the management are facing the people who are running a hospital or a general practice are facing then you're not going to go do you know there's a real issue here what could we do to try and address that and you, people do things at different stages and you have to focus in my experience on where you're a domain expert because trying to do something where you know very little anyone could do that so what have i seen medical students come up with some really stunning uh, stunning things so medify which is now the i think the largest provider of education and training for um, sixth form students applying to go into medical school and i think 
they're the largest provider across the world now, was invented by a, or, or pioneered by a medical student at the Royal London Hospital. And uh, Sajeev is on the Clinical Entrepreneur Programme, and I'm super proud to have him um, on our programme. And he grew this business from his, uh, you know, his bedroom at university. And it's now, I probably shouldn't say, it's turning over a lot of money. He's doing really well, and he's widening access to careers for people who wouldn't normally have been able to come into medicine and through giving them the knowledge that allows them to gain access to I can pass the UK CAT system, you know, and these tests and, and find the right place at medical school. And as I say, that is, is in many countries now in what he's doing. But so, and he identified a problem when he was at a medical student stage. Had he have tried to come up with some new, I don't know, heart valve, um, uh, you know, like the TAVI or something, you'd have gone, hmm, that doesn't really... That I think you're going to struggle with that for a number of reasons, but solving entry to getting into medical school, wow. Um, junior doctors who I know the founders of Pando, the um, secure messaging app platform, that was about can't we replace the bleeper and do something about task prioritization? Uh, it wasn't a consultant that came up with that idea, it was a junior doctor wanting to solve that. They teamed up with a tech partner, or well, three people co founded that actually, two doctors and a tech partner. And taking that forward so uh, it's only when you're exposed to the real problems yourself i think and if you step out of the national health service or out of clinical practice let's put it that way then your knowledge of what the real problems are goes away and do you know it, it sounds great you know oh there's um uh, you know i'll be a tech entrepreneur and actually the vast majority of things i have done in my life i have failed at um, and have been absolute disasters, more than nine out of ten. But because I do so many things and run so many experiments, um, you only get to hear about the one, two, three, or four of them that have gone really well. And that's because there's a whole string of failures behind me, but they weren't really failures because they were just experiments I ran, I ran with a negative result and I learned from them. I think failure is when you don't learn from a negative result. And I've always tried to learn. And you know, we're not very good at that in medicine. Um, you know, where is, where's the journal of um, negative results? I, I've never seen it, it might exist. And I'm, I'm not, you know, because guess what? You don't get research funding for publishing negative results. You don't get funding for showing when things went wrong. And yet, and therefore people are running the same experiments time and time again, and everyone's getting negative results, but they don't know it's been run before and that doesn't work. And so, you know, in medicine, I think we struggle um, professionally and culturally with failure because we say, oh, it's unacceptable, we can't fail. And I'm saying, well, we're all going to fail at some point. The point is, how do we learn from that? How do we manage that? How do we try and make sure we reduce that risk to as low as possible? In other industries, they learn from failure a lot. In medicine, we don't so much. So failing and saying it's okay, you don't want, um, in healthcare, of course, you don't want people to come to harm and do that absolutely. And we have to build systems and processes that make it safe. Um, but actually, I can't, who was this? It's another one. Um, it's not Richard Branson. It's someone, uh, it's one of the other people I quote sometimes. If you're not, failing often you're not doing something very you know inventive or something i can't remember what it was now but it's true failure is a really important thing and learning from it 
we, we have this thing on the clinical entrepreneur program where one of the mentors and I, uh, one year the entrepreneurs came up to us and said, um, I said, we're, we're all feeling just a bit down about this because we're seeing all these great successes, people building startups, raising money. You stand up there and tell us about all these great things. And I said, oh, if only you knew, most of my life's been a total failure. And what I've done. So we developed this um, uh, session in the entrepreneur program called the Disaster Off, where myself and this senior mentor, we get everyone to turn their phones off. There's no taking anything outside the room. And we just try and outpitch each other for our worst disasters in life. And um, I tell you, the room is silent and you can hear the gasps because my colleague gets up to, he was involved in um, a business where the uh, mafia in New York shot someone dead in the room next to him. And I was involved in a, a major issue in the public sector where, um, well, someone hadn't um, behaved in the right manner, let's put it that way, in a uh, in an appropriate uh, governance way, I'll put it that way. And, and, and when I tell people the repercussions of that, they just go, <sighs> and yet you look at, you say, you look at him and go, wow, it's amazing, look at what he's done. If you, as I say, if you could see the scars on my back, you'd go, wow. Wow. <laughs> and I think you're like a beacon of hope for like all the clinical entrepreneurs there um, that do want to pursue entrepreneurship, that do have this burning desire to go out and solve a real genuine problem that can well, impact so many lives. You don't lives. just have to be an entrepreneur. So, you know, the, the, yeah. the clinical entrepreneur, we've got lots of people who build startups, but actually we've got lots of people who come on it who want to be entrepreneurs. They don't want to build a startup, but do you know the commercial skill, knowledge and experience you can gain on the program is help generate a new generation of leaders for the National Health Service who not only understand something about the commercial world and how to create a business plan and understand spreadsheets so they could create new services and offerings within their own clinical system but they're kind of innovation ready so they understand some of the things you're going to need to do to get these new products and services yeah. taken up within the healthcare system and now we've had over 500 frontline clinicians come on the program. Um, I'm hoping we'll grow that to over a thousand in the not too distant future and then into the many thousands. And can you imagine a healthcare system with thousands and thousands so of clinicians amazing. who understand the commercial world, who understand how to prepare a business case and a business plan can help transform clinical services. Um, I think that's it, you know, because you can't rely on someone else to do these things all the time. Clinicians have got to step forward into that leadership role. And I think that's why it kind of works on the, on the entrepreneur program. And I would say we're still about two thirds entrepreneur and one third entrepreneur, but I think that's going to change over time. I, I would, you know, we've got some of the, oh, Tamsin Holland Brown. Oh, she's just wonderful. She's a pediatrician um, from Cambridgeshire. And she's passionate and committed about children with hearing loss. And she's developed a bone conduction hearing system that um, uh, helps children who've got glue ear, you know, and blockages. And of course, when COVID came along, um, one of the things that was considered um, of the operations that was less important, I think it got great. There were four grades, urgent, you know, you're going to die. This is urgent cancer. We need to get on with it. And they were prioritized. And grommet insertion, was put low down at grade four because if you gave a child a hearing aid 
you didn't you could they could probably get by without the operation for a period of time mm. um, but of course mm. audiology services were closing down and you know not seeing people in covid and so these children were being left in her area area without hearing aids and without grommets going in and their hearing was potentially going to be affected for the rest of their lives because once that part of your brain hasn't developed it's yeah. such yeah. a wonderful well, a wonderful human being and doctor and she'd taken a, a cyclist's um, bone conduction um, uh, uh, kind of um, speaker set that if you've ever seen what they were and she adapted that and converted it into a really simple and cheap version of something that you could give to children and she had this um, manufactured and her clinical commissioning group supported it and it's gone to multiple areas around the country now and so suddenly this frontline pediatrician um, and she's a bit younger than me but she's kind of my kind of generation I probably shouldn't say that she's younger than me much. Um, but she, um, you know and she said oh, well I'm not one of these 20 year old tech startup people I'm just a pediatrician who's passionate and committed about children's hearing and we've helped her massively on the program and you know as a result of her work children who would have had either hearing impairment or deafness are now going to be able to hear and when I see something like that wow. I feel really and I don't think she's ever going to build a massive business empire out of it or anything else but is she making a difference to some of our most vulnerable and beautiful citizens our children who've got hearing difficulties mm. And, you know, the NHS is, I've not told her what to do, but I have empowered her and NHS England through the Entrepreneur Programme have empowered her to try and take this innovation forward. And boy, has she done it. And I just feel mm -hmm. super proud of, well, of all the entrepreneurs, but, you know, when you're making a difference like that, you kind of go, yeah. that feels right. That feels like this thing I want to do. But, you know, I get to help. Well, at the moment, it's 507 frontline clinicians who yeah. fill their dreams, and I go, wow. wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. It yeah. truly is amazing. And I encourage everyone to, to apply. And since we have you, Prof, what advice would you give to people that do want to apply for the, the applications for this new cohort of Clinical Entrepreneur Program? So, um, you've got nothing to lose by applying i think the deadline i want to say it's the 13th of october it's on the nhs england website if you google entrepreneur you'll find it um, and it's a completely digital application this year so um, you don't have to actually be employed by the nhs this time around you can be employed by the nhs and any nhs employee can apply this year we've opened it up to everyone but the um, as long as you are delivering services for the National Health Service in some way, then you can apply. So, for example, most people in primary care are not directly employed by the NHS. That's the way the GP contracts are set up. So could you be a provider of NHS services um, in another circumstance? Yeah, absolutely. And so people like that can apply. But it, so it's a, it's a digital form you answer. I think there are three or four main groups of questions. You have to submit an elevator pitch, a 60-second elevator pitch. Um, don't go, some people go and try and produce some um, wonderful thing and you know, film it on your phone. Be yourself. We've had, um, oh, do you know what? Who did this? I can't remember who it was. And um, uh, he said, right, I'm going to give you my 60-second elevator pitch. 
and I'm just getting in the elevator. And he got in and he pushed the button. And by the time wow. he got to the top, he'd finished his elevator pitch. That's amazing. Oh, wow. That's quite a program. cool way of doing I it. I can't. Well, it was one way of doing it. Um, uh, and um, I think, who was it? It was a memorable, um, it, was, it was a really memorable thing. Um, and then, um, but so you, you do that. And then there are these questions you fill out. But we're also this year, because we're not conducting face-to-face -face interviews. Um, because of COVID, um, we've uh, given you the opportunity to submit um, not just the written version, but also some people feel they really want to express themselves outside of the elevator pitch. So we've given you an opportunity to upload a second video where you can give us some more details about your passion, your commitment, your drive, why you really want to do this. And you can explain what you want through that. There And there are some guidelines. And then what will happen is we, each application will be assessed by at least two different and people and will be scored mm. and um, some people when you, if you've got to get across the threshold will go straight through some a sample of people will be um, selected to come for a virtual interview and will you know try and explain things a bit more and work about it and of course some people don't cross the threshold and they then go through a review process and system to make sure we've been as fair and open as we possibly can be with them and we'll always try and give people feedback um, of what they did how they could you know, make a better application next year. We have one um, uh, one chap who um, uh, has applied every single year for the last four years and he's not got on. And my heart does bleed every time. Because he's, he's such a I'm not going to say who he is. He's such a lovely person. And um, I hope he applies this year. He's now He was a medical student. He's now a doctor. <laughs> so um, yeah. I, I hope he applies and I hope he gets on. But it's not, we don't... Um, you have to, the, the marker I was given is people have to be really high quality. So you don't have to have some amazing, you know, innovation and raised a million pounds and built a startup already. You can just be, want to be someone who works in or for the NHS, who is passionate and committed and driven about transforming patient care and services. Um, and thinks that if you learn commercial skills, knowledge and experience, um, that that will help you achieve your um, uh, goals. I recall, oh, what's her name there? She's from the South Coast and she is an occupational therapist and she was absolutely passionate and committed about um, uh, interior design for people with autism. So she was working across community services and was noting how people were much more settled if they had a designed environment around there with regards to colors and the type of furniture and uh, the sort of living environment that would keep people much more calm. And she put a whole package of things together that was advice on to local authorities and on people who might um, uh, uh, be wanting to you know, construct such facilities um, or, or design them on the sorts of things you could put in place. Now, I think it's going to be really difficult ever to make that a business. But does it make a real difference to some really important people? And she's had an absolute whirlwind of a journey on the program going, oh, I'm not sure I'm an entrepreneur. I said, you're not an entrepreneur. And you know that's okay because what you're doing is you're building a sustainable service that makes a massive difference to quality yeah. of um, uh, uh, care for this particular group of patients. And um, I think she's contributed an enormous amount to the program and learned an enormous amount. And it's not necessarily the, the uh, you know, educational sessions we put on. 
you know, the most education is the peer-to-peer, -peer, the knowledge they exchange. You know, you get a room of a hundred of them together and it's like an indoor fireworks display. So many ideas going off, new collaborations being formed, partnerships. People are starting up companies on the program. And, and I didn't realize you could do that. I'm not going to make the same mistake that you've made there. That's great. I'll go and see this person instead. And so people are, are really sort of leapfrogging stages in the development of their ideas because they're learning from each other. And it's the most incredible thing. And you know, it's the only the NHS that could have done this because in America and many countries, it's small private hospitals and systems, and you can't get the critical mass of entrepreneurial talent. But in the NHS, we're the fifth largest employer of professionals on the planet. And you know, 1.3 million employees. And so we were always gonna have a real talent pool of people who have that entrepreneurial spirit. So we can bring them together. And, and, and so I hope, you know, we've seen in COVID, haven't we, with the NHS, we have led the world in some things. And one of those research, yeah. you know, if you go to many countries, they can't share their data, they can't pull things together. And it didn't matter whether you were in Truro or Tyneside, the data from intensive care patients with COVID was shared and pulled. So we were able to show some medications that people thought might work, didn't work. And we were able to show really important drugs like dexamethasone was a really effective way of treating this disease. And we led the world in providing that evidence. It wouldn't have happened. And now that is a discovery that has changed people's lives and saved lives right across the yeah. planet and it came from the nhs nhs which is amazing i think so yeah it really is and just listening to you is just like we're in awe of everything you achieved I, and and you should be in awe of the nhs yeah, uh, yeah and i think yeah it's like the, the 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 pioneering and that we now have the opportunity to you know be doctors be entrepreneurs be able to solve yeah. problems um and it kind of makes being a doctor fun again for us people. Exactly. Well, some people do, oh, do really enjoy being a doctor, let's be clear. And it can be really yeah, yeah, no, no. And, <laughs> and, I, and I know what you mean. But, you know, sometimes yeah. I feel like the clinicians I meet, and certainly on the Entrepreneur Programme, are like these um, you know, fantastic, talented musicians. And I suppose my role in leading the entrepreneurism, I get to be a bit like the conductor. And I try and get them to coordinate and work together mm. and it is yeah. and when they start working together rather than any one of them practicing on their own suddenly you get something truly amazing that comes out of it and yeah, yeah, uh, you know what could be the power of that if lots of people apply and come on the program and they we empower clinicians routinely to have the skill knowledge and experience to try and transform healthcare and you know my ambition I want to get I, shouldn't, I probably shouldn't say it, but there we are. Do you know, I want patients. I've always wanted patients and citizens to come on the program. And I'm, I'm oh, wow. pushing for it, for instance, since day one. And I'm hoping in, a, won't be in this cohort this year, but I'm hoping in the cohort mm. next year, we're really going to, because if we bring everyone to the heart, the center of healthcare, then we can redesign it together and we'll get it right. Mm. Children and young people, should be involved in designing things that are right for them. I don't know what's right for many of these people. Yeah. Everyone through their stages of life should come and help us do this, in my view. Um, and mm. I'm passionate and committed and driven to try and make that happen. And let's, let's mm. see in a year if we um, 
if we were to that would be amazing to see you know I met, he's he sadly died recently a wonderful wonderful patient and entrepreneur called michael series who i think was the 12th i want to say he was total bowel transplant patient in our country mm. and he came up with mm. a solution for something and i'd never really thought of it as a problem so he because of his bowel mm. transplant he lived for many years with a colostomy and of course for me I've done many over my career and, and fashioned them, and I've never really thought of the consequences of living with one. Now, if they, um, and you get no sensation when they fill up, so suddenly you could be walking, you could be out shopping. Um, and I recall as Michael um, said to me once, he said, you could be uh, being intimate with your partner, mm. and suddenly mm. your colostomy bag fills and it bursts, and everything is contaminated, and soiled, mm. and covered. Mm. And he said, it's the most awful thing. So he took out the little flexible element there is, I think it was in a wee um, uh, a glove or something, and attached it to a colostomy mm. bag and a little Wi-Fi, uh, a kind of a communication system. So when your bag got to um, half full, um, it would automatically mm. alert your um, smartphone. And if you were asleep, you would wake up. And if you were out, it would vibrate discreetly. So you knew I need to go and empty my bag now. And I just thought, I would mm. never have invented that. We need yeah, a patient yeah, wow. who'd suffered from that problem to say, doctors aren't doing anything about this. I'm going to take this forward. And I think yeah. the real hero. And, you know, I want to see mm. more of that. I really want to see more of that. And so yeah. it's my job in the center to say, why yeah. can't we make that happen? What's the barrier <laughs> here? Okay. And, and let's see what we can do to try and do that. Isn't that the sort of health service we should have? I think so. I think it'll be amazing. Mm. It really would. Um, well, we're, co we're conscious of your time, and I feel bad for you know on a late Friday evening taking up your time. Um, but this was really insightful. We've we've definitely learned a lot, and I know our listeners would would really enjoy listening to this. Um, we want to thank you, Professor, for taking the time out and kind of encouraging us, kind of giving us the motivation to continue what we're doing. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. I'll say it properly this time. Professor. <laughs> <laughs> an absolute professor. An absolute professor. So look, just so thank you for asking me to join you. It, it is a, 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 a privilege. Um, but absolutely, you guys and, and your listeners, just follow your dreams and be true to yourself. Mm. And of course, apply to the NHS England Clinical Entrepreneur oh. Programme. Um, <laughs> yes, we would do. I think, yeah. Thank you so Brilliant. much. Brilliant. Thank you so much, guys.